You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah, and it is now week five of the George Floyd protests against police brutality and month four of being stuck in my apartment recording the show. Now, New York City is actually in phase two of reopening, which means that many people can go back to their offices. However, I am not yet going back to my office because that's exactly where coronavirus thinks I'm gonna go. To beat the virus, you gotta think like the virus. Anyway, on tonight's episode, we speak to former police investigator, Seth Stoughton, about what policing can do to change its image and the way they act in America. D.L. Hewley is also on the show to talk about his new book and passing out on stage, and we'll learn what it's like to be black in corporate America. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with immigration. It's the reason your food has flavor and how the president met 66% of his wives. When Donald Trump ran for office, his platform was that he opposed illegal immigration. And I want people to come into the country, but I want them to come in legally. That's right, big guy. But after taking office, Trump began restricting legal immigration too. And now thanks to Corona, it looks like he's taking it all the way. Tonight, a new round of immigration restrictions from the White House. President Trump has signed an executive order blocking entry into the United States for at least four types of visas, including the H-1B visa for high-skilled workers. They're going to press pause on a lot of these visas for foreign workers coming into the United States because of the high unemployment rate in the United States. They say senior administration officials saying they want to see an America-first economic recovery that starts with Americans. That's right, folks. For the time being, immigration into America is basically shut down. Which is not just gonna hurt new immigrants, it's gonna hurt a lot of Americans too. Because as a major study concluded, long-run economic growth in America would be considerably dimmed without the contributions of high-skilled immigrants. I mean, let's be honest, if you actually want to save American jobs, then you should build a wall to stop robots. But good luck with that, because if you've seen movies, you know that robots are unstoppable killing machines. And as an immigrant, personally, I'm torn by this story. You know, because on the one hand, I feel like this is yet another example of this administration's xenophobia. On the other hand, it gives me the perfect excuse to not let my African cousin come crash on my couch. Yeah, sorry, Cizwe, you can't come stay with me. Trump said you can't come in. Oh, but Trevor, I'm just a tourist. This doesn't affect me. Yeah, but I just, I don't want to take any chances. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to make Trump angry. What, what is he now? What? Is he not angry now? <laughs> Moving on to technology news. When the coronavirus pandemic began, a lot of Americans hoped that there'd be a way to use smart devices to automatically alert people if they had been in contact with anyone who tested positive for the virus. You know, it would be the ultimate fusion of high tech and public health. Well, we're not getting that but we are getting this. 
Apple watches will soon be able to tell a user if they're washing their hands long enough to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and other illnesses. Apple says in the newest watch update, it'll let you know how long you're washing your hands. It'll set a countdown for 20 seconds, which is how long the CDC recommends we should all wash our hands. Uh, the watch will vibrate when the 20 seconds are complete. The watch will use motion to detect hand washing and then use audio to confirm it by listening for running water or the squishing of soap. Just when I thought Apple's best days were behind them, they come up with this because I am sick and tired of singing happy birthday every time I wash my hands, mainly because it makes me hungry for birthday cake. So then I eat a birthday cake, but then I get icing on my hands, which means I gotta go wash my hands again, which makes me want more birthday cake. And now I have diabetes. I will say one thing that concerns me is how the Apple Watch is supposed to detect that you're washing your hands. And I mean, it's gonna use hand-washing motions and squishing sounds. Seems like a lot of teenage boys are gonna get interrupted all day long. Also, evil villains are gonna hate this new Apple Watch. And that's how we finally destroy the world. <laughs> 15 more seconds. <laughs> 10 more seconds. <laughs> this isn't fun anymore. And finally, let's talk about the CIA. It's America's premier intelligence agency and probably the reason for all those fireworks you're hearing at night. And now it might also be your next job. The CIA is looking for new spies by putting out this ad and several other versions. The agency says the ads will run nationwide on entertainment, news and lifestyle streaming services. It only takes one new piece of foreign intelligence and everything can change in an instant. Hey, I think I found something. Your achievements, while unknown to the public, are critical to our national security. This translation is technically accurate, but in this context, it really means this. The nation... We got it. ...is counting on you to discover the truth. I'll call the White House. Start a career at the CIA and do more for your country than you ever dreamed possible. Okay, this whole thing is weird. Why is the CIA making recruitment ads? If you're such good spies, surely you already know who you should hire. I don't want the CIA asking me to apply. I want them knocking on my door and saying, we saw how you played FIFA, Trevor. We think you have what it takes to join the CIA. I knew it. And also, I don't know why the CIA put their contact info at the end of the ad, right? Finding out how to contact the CIA should be the first test. If you can't figure that out, you probably shouldn't be in the CIA. And look, I also get that they wanna make being in the CIA look cool and dramatic, but when it comes down to it, being a CIA agent is basically just being a real housewife. Only you get to gossip about terrorists. So I just heard that Al-Qaeda in Syria raided the home of Abu Malek Al-Tali because he tried to break up with them. What a bitch. He's coming. Now, the reason the CIA is running this ad is because they're trying to recruit a more diverse workforce and they're having trouble competing with Silicon Valley for employees. And although I see what they're trying to do, I still think that they could have been a little bit more honest about what a job at the CIA entails. And so, instead of just hoping, we tweak the ad for them. The world is filled with danger, and the CIA needs your help. In the Middle East, the Taliban are causing chaos. And yeah, we trained them. But now we need your help to untrain them. 
There's chaos all over South America. Yeah, maybe it was all those coups we did. But with your help, we can uncoup them. And while you're at it, Gary has my flash drive. I need you to get it back. It's got all my vacation photos. The world we live in today is filled with threats, upheaval, and turmoil. And we made a lot of those things worse. Didn't we also fill the inner cities with crap? We don't talk about that. The CIA. We broke it. Help us fix it. Ha <laughs> We totally burned the CIA. All right, someone's knocking at my door. I gotta go check who that is. But when we come back, we're gonna talk about what it's like to be black working in corporate America. And D.L. Hewley is joining us on the show to talk about what happened when he got coronavirus. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. As the Black Lives Matter movement has rapidly gained traction over the past month, it's not just celebrities and Instagram models who are jumping on board. Corporate America has also decided to finally step up. But while these companies are posting messages of support for the Black community, many Black people who work in these companies are asking them to put their money where their mouth is. Big-name corporations sharing messages of solidarity, but many are calling on them to practice what they preach. Employees at places like Estee Lauder and Adidas speaking out against a lack of diversity and equality in their workplaces, despite public messages of support from the company's CEOs. In a video, Nike said, don't pretend there's not a problem in America. Critics point out that all of Nike's executives are white. You cannot say Black Lives Matter publicly when you don't show us Black Lives Matter within your own homes and within your organizations. Yeah, that's right. If you are just some random person who has 10 followers on Twitter and you tweet Black Lives Matter, maybe that's the best you can do. But if you're a major corporation that hires thousands of people, you can actually show that Black Lives Matter in a material way that goes beyond your social media feed. On their own, corporate tweets are useless. No one's gonna stop being racist because SpaghettiOs told them to. Like, it's not enough to just be Black Lives Matter in the tweets. You gotta be Black Lives Matter in the streets. Hell, you gotta be Black Lives Matter in the sheets. Okay, maybe I didn't think that last one through, but you know what I mean. But the question is, why are African Americans so underrepresented in the American workforce? Well, let's find out in our brand new segment, This Black American Life. Why aren't more African Americans hired in American companies? Is it because they're lazy? Is it because they're uneducated? Or is it because offices are just way too cold? Well, despite what your racist uncle might post on Facebook, the truth is, for many black Americans, getting a job is almost impossible. And it's because their blackness stops them from even getting in the door. Blacks are the last hired and the first fired. White males are hired based on potential. Blacks are hired based on demonstrated accomplishments. Going back a quarter century, statistically speaking, very little has changed for black applicants. Whites receive, on average, 36% more callbacks than African-Americans and 24% more callbacks than Latinos. Thousands of made-up resumes were mailed to employers, identical except for the names, half black-sounding, half white. The results? Black-sounding names were 50% less likely to get follow-up calls. Wow. Racism never takes a day off. 
If you have a black sounding name on your resume, you're 50% less likely to get called in for the interview. Imagine if America had the same policy when picking a president. That would have screwed things up. It says Barack Hussein Obama. Okay, next, next, next. What we got here? John Edwards. Now this guy sounds like he's got it. And that's the thing I wish more people understood. Black people are asking for equality, not charity. They're not asking people to hire black people just because they're black. They're asking companies to stop not hiring black people just because they're black. Because even with the exact same qualifications and a resume that's exactly the same, the only thing that blocks people is having a black sounding name. I mean, why would anyone even want a workplace with no black people in it? You need at least one person who knows how to dance at the office party. And also what if zombies show up? You want them to kill you first? So it's enough of a challenge getting your black foot in the door of corporate America. And if you're lucky enough to find your way into the office, Good luck finding the ladder. Only 3.2% of executives and senior leaders in the U.S. are African-American. There are only four black CEOs in the Fortune 500, only four, and no black women. There are too few opportunities uh, for African-Americans to rise to the top. Uh, to have the opportunity to serve in leadership positions. There's a promotion gap. At every level going up, it becomes less and less diverse, more white. When I don't see those that have been in the company for X amount of years not hold certain titles, there places a doubt in my mind. Representative Al Green asking a pointed question to major bank CEOs. If you believe that your likely successor will be a woman or a person of color, would you kindly extend a hand into the air? Okay, that was just awkward. I mean, from the way those bank CEOs reacted, that congressman might as well have asked them to raise their hands if they'd ever seen Mike Pence eating a flaming hot Cheeto. Not a single one of those banks thinks it's even possible that a person of color will run the company. That says a lot. I mean, if you ask me, Every bank should be run by a black woman. Yeah, because banks are out here losing trillions of dollars, credit default swaps, mortgage scams, and then after they screw up, average people lose their homes. Meanwhile, black women are out in these streets every day figuring out how to make a dollar stretch into 10. I'll tell you right now, if my grandmother ran a major bank, she would have been the one bailing America out. Oh no, the economy crashed. Oh baby, let me see, I've got two trillion here. Hold on, ooh, there you go. You bring back my change. Now, if you're one of the few black people who have made it into corporate America, congratulations. Your reward is working every day with some people who have no idea how to act around you. Microaggression describes indirect or subtle discrimination. And if you're on the receiving end, it can be as hurtful as anything overt. White people will come to me and say, you speak so well. <laughs> and then, right, you speak so well, or you're very articulate. In my own personal experience, like, you don't sound black. Like, what does sound black and sound white really mean? You're not like the others and stuff like that. And you think about it because it's like, you're not like the others. So, well, what are the others? The assumption is always going to lead in that I'm, I know less. My manager turns to me and says, well, isn't your hair so big because all of your intelligence is in there? And physically grabbed my hair. Yeah, every day, black people have to navigate a workplace filled with people who don't even realize that they're doing something offensive. You're so intelligent, it must be in your hair. This is what you get from living in a segregated society. 
Instead of knowing black people and black culture, you've got white folks interacting with black people like they're making contact with E.T. Hello, my friend. Do your people shake hands? Nah, it's a coronavirus. And it's because millions of white Americans don't have the first clue of how to interact with their black coworkers or just even be normal around them that black people in corporate America have to spend an inordinate amount of time making white people feel comfortable. For those of us who have been in corporate America, we have to be able to exist and not only exist, but to really thrive in two totally different cultures. This idea of double consciousness. Our blackness isn't accepted in a lot of spaces that are um, critical for our success. Intelligence is often linked to whiteness, so black people are often encouraged in professional settings to use a quote-unquote white voice, AKA code switch. I turn it on, I have to be my best, unauthentic self in order for me to relate to my white peers. And I have to make sure that I can talk about subjects that relate to your lifestyle that have absolutely nothing to do with mine. I speak two languages. I speak English <laughs> and I speak white. Because a, a lot of what we do <laughs> are the things to make white people feel more comfortable around oh. us. Yeah. So many people take for granted that black people in the office are not just focusing on their job. They're focusing on not being perceived as threatening or disruptive or too black. And so you try your best to blend in with the whiteness that's around you. Like, that's not something that white people ever have to worry about. I mean, white kids don't even code switch when they talk to their parents. What up, dude? Yeah, I'm crushing it on Call of Duty. Yeah, okay, hold on, my mom's calling me. Yo, dude, what up? Yeah, bro, I told you, I'll crush my homework when I'm done. All right, I'll talk to you later, mom, bye. So. To corporate America, if you really believe in rooting out systemic racism and supporting black lives, then I say to you, examine your own actions within your companies before history leaves you behind. Or as I would put it if I wasn't in the office, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Don't go away, because after the break, we'll be talking about policing with Seth Stoughton, and then I'll catch up with D.L. Hughley on the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with former police officer and investigator Seth Stoughton, who studies policing at the University of South Carolina and who co-authored the book, Evaluating Police Uses of Force. Professor Seth Stoughton, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, let's get straight into it. You've worked in policing. You understand what it is like to be a policeman and you've studied it. What do you make of America's current police situation? Is it as bad as people say? Is it overblown or is it somewhere in between? It's somewhere in between. It's not as bad as it used to be and it's not nearly as good as it could be and as it should be. Uh, we've seen a lot of progress with American policing. It is different and better than it was 50 years ago, mm -hmm. but it's not nearly as much better compared to five years ago or 10 years ago as we should be. So I think people are right to keep their attention on it and to demand improvements. When we look at policing, uh, you know, and you look at the conversations around defund the police or abolish the police, a lot of those arguments boil down to the idea that too much money has been put into policing, which isn't getting the required result. But you have a different idea of what you think policing should be. What, what, what is that exactly? Yeah, so I and others have really tried to push this idea of guardian policing. And guardian policing is 
a, a service-oriented approach where the values, the principles that underlie policing, that help agencies figure out how to deploy their resources, that help individual officers figure out how to deal with particular situations, should be grounded in the desire to serve and to protect community members from unnecessary indignities and harms. And the important part is that includes the unnecessary indignities and harms that can result from policing itself. You can't look at policing in America or anywhere in the world without looking at the origins of policing and what it was originally intended to do, which was help rich people keep poor people away from their shit, essentially. That's what it was. And so when you, when you look at policing today, you still see vestiges of that, you know, like how tickets are given out, who police choose to enforce, how they choose to enforce. So is there a way to reform a system that is fundamentally built on a flawed concept or, or do you have to rebuild something from the ground up? One of the things that we need to remember is that we don't have a race issue in policing. We have a race issue in society that gets reflected and often magnified in police encounters. It's not going to be enough to just focus on policing. We also need to think about how to improve society and the way that we as society uh, depend on police. We've put police into the position of dealing with these issues, dealing with these social problems. Right. And there's so many connections between race and poverty and the way that we've criminalized uh, some substances, right? The difference between crack and powder cocaine, for example. Mm-hmm. I do think we can build atop a a bad foundation. I think what it requires us to do is repair that foundation, both in society and in policing. And this is why I think we need cultural change within policing. It's not enough to just say, let's keep doing what we've been doing, but tweak it a bit. We need to reimagine the culture of policing itself. From what I've read, it seems like a lot of police training is based around a worst case scenario. You know, a lot of police training is, all right, we're gonna teach you how to do a, uh, conduct a traffic stop, and at any moment, someone can pull out a gun. All right, we're gonna teach you how to handle a domestic dispute, and at any moment, someone can pull out a gun. We're gonna teach you, it feels like police are trained to expect the worst in every scenario, and so when anything happens in real life, they go, this is exactly what I've been trained for. Is that an accurate portrayal of part of the problem? It it is. I'm going to give the general caveat that there are 18,000 police agencies and 650 different academies. So it it varies. But certainly fear-based training is a major obstacle to collaborative, democratically accountable policing. It's very difficult to tell an officer, everyone that you interact with is able to and possibly willing to kill you. And at the same time, tell the officer, so go out, make friends, be nice, and, you know, engage in community policing. There's some major mixed messages there. And if you ask most officers, is policing safer today than it has been, or is it less safe, or is it about the same? What you hear almost inevitably is it's worse than it's ever been. And that's because within policing, we provide and reinforce this message of threat and danger that the evidence doesn't really bear out, but it's a very, very powerful narrative and a very powerful rhetoric that's difficult to resist. Yeah, it, it really feels like we're living in a world where, you know, police feel like they're under assault and so are responding like a force that is under assault. It also feels like society is torn between these two worlds where, you know, they've been given this false like choice between 
zero police or zero law enforcement in any way, shape or form, or an extremely militarized force, what are some of the tangible things that have been done that have improved policing? I think there's a whole mess of reforms. There are uh, legislative reforms at the federal level. Uh, we need better data. The feds could uh, pass legislation that incentivized states to do the data collection that we need to really get a very granular understanding of policing. We need better legal frameworks at the state level for officer certification. Uh, the idea uh, of wandering officers who are fired or who resign in lieu of termination from one agency only to go to work at another agency should terrify everyone, including folks who are supporters of good policing. We need to get a handle, frankly, on some of the union contract provisions that provide significant procedural safeguards to officers. It can make it very, very difficult to identify, investigate, or discipline uh, officers who've engaged in misconduct. And we can do things at the local level, not just as a, as a matter of law and local ordinances, but as a matter of police agency policy. Building police culture around peer intervention, the way the New Orleans Police Department has with its EPIC program, Ethical Policing is Courageous, right. is, uh, it should be a, a no-brainer. It should be a first step for agencies across the country. A lot of what people complain about with policing is just in the day-to-day -day interactions, the way police treat communities of color, the way police treat black people, the way police treat a lot of poorer white communities as well. You know, and you've, I've seen some of these communities who've said, no, we agree with defunding the police. We agree because we have also felt the brunt of this. So what do you think could be done to improve the accountability that police feel towards their communities? At risk of sounding like a broken record, I think it has to be baked into culture. Just having a new policy or some new training is not going to be enough. Right. I think we can change that social and legal framework, but even that I think is, is not going to be enough without that cultural change. The, maybe the, the bigger thing here is figuring out where we have overused police. Because one of the complaints that I'm sure you've heard, it, we don't just have complaints of over-policing in marginalized communities. We also, at the same time, we have complaints of under-policing. Right. The cops are focusing on drug crimes and they're stopping everybody, but they're not paying any attention to the robberies or the auto thefts, right? right. That's because the police, at least in those communities, are not actually responding to what the community cares about. That's a basic failure of democratic institutions. And unfortunately, a lot of the insular nature of policing, a lot of that adversarial us versus them mentality makes it very easy to reject criticism or uh, ignore calls for reform. Well, I think what you're saying is... Um... It's tough for a lot of people to hear because it means the problem is a lot bigger than they'd like to admit. But at the same time, um, that's the truth for many issues, you know, looking at it through the lens of society, figuring out what police are doing on behalf of society and then going from there. Um, Professor Stoughton, thank you so much for joining us on the show and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for that, Seth. After the break, I'll be speaking to D.L. Hewley about his brand new book, Surrender, white people, stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is comedian and radio host, D.L. Hewley. 
Earlier, we spoke about what it was like testing positive for COVID-19 and his new book, Surrender White People, which is available for pre-order now. D.L. Hughley, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thank you, man. I wish I, I wish I'd, uh, I wish I'd been a little more socially distant myself. Yeah, man, let's talk about that. I mean, this was one of the scariest videos I've seen because I see you perform, performing on stage in Zanies right. in Nashville. The next thing I see D.L. Hughley like fainted on stage or passed out, people are carrying him off the stage. I was right. panicking. In that moment, did you did you know what was happening? Like, did you did you feel it happening, I, or did you just wake up in the hospital? No, I knew I knew what was happening. I mean, I didn't know that I would pass out, but I felt faint before I went on stage, and I was actively trying to tell Bo my opening act to extend a little longer so I could get it together. But I guess they didn't hear me, and they brought me on. Uh, they brought me on stage, but I was awake the whole time. I passed out. Then we go to the hospital where they tell me I'm dehydrated. My electrolytes were low and tell me I'm exhausted. And they tested uh, for, a, you know, they had a battery of tests like all the time. And they right. uh, told me I COVID, uh, was positive for COVID, which was the most surreal. Like, I, I just, I didn't understand how because I, I didn't have any, any of the classic symptoms that, that, you know, they ascribe to COVID. Like, no, no, you know, flu-like symptoms, no cough, no, no shortness of breath, no loss of taste, but I just lost consciousness. So I guess <laughs> that might you know, it's not a good thing no matter what. So I guess uh, I guess uh, that was, uh, you know, one of the things. And then it was funny because when I got back to the hotel, when I got, I had to be in the hospital for a day and I got back to the hotel and then the, the hotel was like, now nah, we want you to leave. So, they, <laughs> so <laughs> I guess black lives matter, but not in the lobby. They don't, they don't matter, not in the lobby. But DL, here, on like on the real, but like I wouldn't I wouldn't ask this of anyone, I wouldn't say this to anyone else, but like I keep it real with you. Why are you right. out doing shows when there's coronavirus? Exactly. You know, I literally <laughs> I, exactly what the hell was I? But I, it was actually for a charity that gave masks. And then, you know, obviously I missed it, but I had I had gotten really sick in January and I and I and I thought that I'd had it then. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to test for the antibodies. Uh, this week. So, you know, I, I, I really assumed that it would be cool. And, and uh, I was obviously very wrong. So I think, you know, I just uh, blew it. <laughs> I've made a mistake. You know, I understand maybe where you're coming from. I, like, I get it's this invisible thing. Everyone's like, maybe, maybe not. The government doesn't tell us like we don't know right. anything. But like, right. what would you what would you say to somebody who thinks like you and goes like, man, I'm just going back out there. I'm going to live my life as usual. I think that um, now I would say two things. One, I think that everybody needs to be tested, everybody, because I had no idea what was happening and I had no idea what was going on. And the other, and I think that's primarily because we don't have like a uniform where I live is decidedly different than where I performed in tech. Like I could never have performed in Los Angeles um, because we, we're not open for that. But, right. you know, the gig was in, I had a gig in Texas, did a gig in Nashville. So what I had to do is go to states where they clearly don't give a damn about their people to perform. <laughs> so I should have known. <laughs> I should have known when they, when they don't care about their people, they're sure not going to care about a stranger. Oh, but man. I, I should have known then, but I kind of thought, okay, it'll be cool and everything was socially distant. And, you know, we took our temperature and, and, our, and, our, and our oxygen levels and I just thought it would be cool and it very clearly was not. Let's talk about the book. The title is is already provocative. I mean, it's classic D.L. Hughley, Surrender White People. 
What, what, what are you saying in the book? Because I, I know it's a satire and I know you're talking about race relations in America. You're talking about systemic racism. You're talking about oppression. You're talking about reparations. What do you hope people get from this book? I mean, that title is, is, is provocative. When I say surrender white people, obviously it's not in a military sense. It's this notion of, of supremacy. Even though um, we're arguing over monuments, which everybody right now, there's this heightened awareness because of what happened to Matt Arbery and, and, and uh, the, uh, uh, Breonna Taylor and, and now uh, George Floyd. Everybody is keyed up about that. But we want to keep monuments. Everybody was acted at recoil and disgust with what happened to George Floyd. But they want to keep monuments to men who did far worse to black people. Far worse. We have, we have men who performed um, surgery on black women, enslaved black women with no, guy, with no anesthesia, have statues. Every dude uh, that, that has a statue and riding around a horse hated black people. And, and so um, if, if it's no big deal and we want to change, why do we want to keep the vestiges of what we were? And the ideas of why we are like we are, because policemen are really doing in our community what they always have been supposed to do. They didn't know their mission changed. They're supposed to keep us where we are and do, do that by any means necessary. So they didn't, they didn't have any notion that their idea of policing in our communities was going to change and it did it on a dime. And I think we have to let go of these notions because there are really people who believe that it is the, the way that they were born that made them superior in some way. And so if you believe that, th there's really no way to move on. There's really no way to go if you believe that this is your inherent God-given right, right to be, have everybody else be subservient. So... And the book is just uh, that in a comedic way. And I'm writing a peace treaty because, you know, peace treaties don't really give anybody anything. They give the people that win the ability to say that I did something good and us. That, <laughs> what they basically get is for us to shut up about race. That's what they get. They get, to, they get to go shut up about it. What, so. what, would, what would you say? What would you say is the first step then? Because I mean, you know, like obviously people are talking about defunding the police. People are talking about having conversations in, in Hollywood, conversations in corporate America. But what are some of the other steps that you'd like to see people take? Like, where do you even begin to have meaningful conversations that move things forward? You'll have uh, people like Bank of America said that we're going to give a billion dollars, um, you know, to, to ending discrimination. But wouldn't it be better if you just said yes on a couple of loan home loans? You could do that, too. But all these grandiose gestures are best, uh, uh, you know, and they're placatory at best, I think. And I think maybe, maybe people's hearts are in the right place. But just be fair. If you know our schools are terrible, um, why, why would you underfund them? If you know that, you know, uh, we redline areas, why do we allow that? If we know that, um, you know, there's a bias in, in the medical field, why do we have it? Um, so more than just, you know, tearing statues down and, and wearing T-shirts, uh, do the right thing. Just get out there and do the right thing. Um... Before I let you go, I just want to know what you're doing right now. Like, are you home? Are you healthy? Why is, why is your camera shaking like you're going to pass out? Right. Like, what's, what's <laughs> going on in your world? That's what I want to know. Well, I kind of to tell you, I made it. I, well, they, I, I was serious. The hotel didn't feel comfortable with me standing, so I had to take a jet. And I don't blame them, DL. I don't blame yeah. them. If I, I was staying in that hotel, I would be like, I heard there is a gentleman who has coronavirus. <laughs> I would like him to please be pre-checked out when right. he comes back. <laughs> And they did, so I came home. And my wife is the same way. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm in my kitchen. I don't want to eat Um, But last night, again, I, I passed out again, so I'm on my way to UCLA, so I don't know what's going on. Man, look after yourself. That, For real, though. Look after yourself. Stay healthy. Take it seriously. Please, man. And, and get yeah. better Wi-Fi in, the, in your guest room, DL. Don't, that should be better Wi-Fi for your guests. How are you going to have people over and not have good Wi-Fi? 
But man, come on, that's just like if you feed them, they'll stay, man. If I give you good wine, people stay for the wine. I, I can't have that. I can't. I have dial up in this room. Who knew I would need it? <laughs> oh man, DL, thank you so much for being with us. I hope everybody reads the book, man. Thank you, man. All right, my dude. Thank you. Thank you so much, DL. I hope you get better soon. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, as you may know, June is Pride Month. And right now, we wanna highlight charities that are making a difference for LGBTQ communities, especially those of color, like the National Black Justice Coalition, which advocates for federal policies that fight against racism and homophobia. And if you can help them and you'd like to join in, then please donate whatever you can. And if you'd like to support efforts to help the black LGBTQ community specifically in New York, then you can donate to the Audrey Lord Project. They help these communities fight for their rights and organize for change. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.